welcome and announcements. And after the first song, after I sat down, I realized I had failed to turn my microphone off. Uh, so uh, he wasn't sending it through the, the house, right? Did it go to the radio? Because that's happened before. You didn't hear it, but everyone out in Radio Land heard solo. <laughs> and it was bad. In fact, my brother heard it one time, and he said, you've got to remember to turn that thing off. <laughs> I think the Lord heard it, though, and said that was good. Beautiful. <laughs> Do you have your Bible this morning? Galatians chapter 5, 6 is where you need to go. Last week we began our look at this section of Galatians that is full of very practical and quite specific application of the principles that Paul has been laying out for weeks now. I told you last week that I would love to preach this section all in one shot, uh, but it would require five or six hours of preaching. And since that isn't feasible yet, maybe one day, we're going to be in this same passage for a few weeks. Um, but I really want you to see these messages over the next few weeks as very much connected to one another. Not one-off sermons that kind of stand alone, but part one, part two, part three, part four, part five of uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 through chapter 6, verse 5. Last week we looked closely at chapter 5, verse 26 and the command to avoid conceit. Conceit being that self-absorbed, self-focused, self-interest, selfishness. We also saw that conceit can come out in a couple of different ways in our lives. For one, it can look like superiority when we challenge one another in an effort to prove our greatness. Or it can look like inferiority when we envy one another and express some kind of false humility. I told you to beware of these forms of conceit and repent of all forms of conceit. Last week we also looked at verse 2 as a general application we are called to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, we fulfill the law of Christ. So I told you last week, bear one another's burdens. If you know someone who is about to be crushed under some heavy weight, come alongside them and help. Don't just stand on the sidelines and watch them get crushed to death. Run to them and help them bear that burden. Basically, I, I encouraged you and, and commanded you even uh, on the authority of God's word to love one another in doing this. Secondly, I said that if we are going to bear one another's burdens, we have to be willing to share our burdens with one another. Conceit will oftentimes keep us from sharing those burdens. If I think I'm tough enough to handle this on my own or that I'm so low no one would even care about me, we will fail to share those burdens and then no one can help us bear them. So if there's going to be sharing, if there's going to be bearing, there also must be sharing and, and we want to be doing that. And I want to say to you, thank you. For coming alongside me and bearing my burdens. As you know, the last few months have been uh, the most difficult of my ministry. There have been crushing burdens nearly everywhere I look. And many of you have come alongside me and helped shoulder that load in some very practical and very obvious and very helpful ways. Thank you for that. And I am certain that there are even more of you who have joined in bearing those burdens in less noticeable but equally beneficial ways. And I want to say thank you to that, for that. I want to say thank you to you all for bearing those burdens. And I don't mean to act like this burden over the last few months is exclusively mine, but I'm trying to thank you personally for the ways you've helped me bear the burdens that are exclusively mine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Look at it on the screen. He says, finally, my, finally then, brethren, 
We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel, excel still more. I like that because basically what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica is he's saying, you know how you're supposed to walk, and you're actually walking that way. And then he says, but excel still more in that. And that's the way I want to encourage you today. I want to say, as one who has received the benefit of the body, as you've come alongside and helped bear some of these burdens, I want to say, great job on that. And I want you to know that I notice it in a lot of other ways too. But I want to call you not just a great job, now sit back and do nothing, Great job. Let's excel still more in this bearing of one another's burdens and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. So good job. Keep it up. Excel still more. That's what I want to say to you from the bottom of my heart today. This week we are going to see a more specific example of what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. And to be frank, this is yet another passage in Galatians that hits very close to home. Uh, Too close, maybe even for comfort today. And like I've said, for the last 10 years here, if we are faithful to study God's word week in and week out, plowing through the text verse by verse by verse, God will give us what we need when we need it. He continues to do that, and we must praise him for this. Not say, oh, Lord, I'd rather not hear this today, so we'll just skip this and go to something that's easier, but rather say, all right, Lord, we've been on this track for a long time now, and you've got us here today in chapter 6, verse 1, so say what you will to us today. Say what you will, and we will hear it, and we will respond in obedience. John Stott introduces this section of Galatians by saying this. This paragraph is the New Testament answer to Cain's irresponsible question, am I my brother's keeper? In Genesis chapter 4. If a man is my brother, then I am his keeper. I am to care for him in love, to be concerned for his welfare, I am neither to assert my fancied superiority over him and provoke him, nor resent his superiority over me and envy him. I am to love him and to serve him. If he is heavy laden, I am to bear his burdens. If he falls into sin, I am to restore him and that gently. It is to such practical Christian living, brotherly care, and service that walking by the Spirit will lead us. And it is by such too that the law of Christ is fulfilled. And that's particularly what we're going to look at today, is if he falls into sin, I am to restore him, and that gently. Let's read together the text, Galatians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 26. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 5, but we will spend almost all of our time and attention today in chapter 6, verse 1. This is what God's Word says. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful or conceited, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each will bear his own load. Let's pray together. Father, we want to walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. 
We have been made alive by the Spirit, and we want to keep in step with the Spirit. And we know that that involves brotherly care, service, bearing one another's burdens, restoring, sinning brother. And We admit we're not good at this. We're uncomfortable with any of this talk about restoring or confronting a brother who's caught in sin. It has gone so badly so many times that we're afraid. But we know this is your desire. You've said this in your word. And we want to obey you. We want to live this out rightly. So we pray that you teach us today. And that you change us. That you convict us and grow us by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the way we're going to work through this today is just kind of word by word, phrase by phrase, through verse 1. Notice he starts by addressing these people as brethren. This is the audience of the directive here. And Paul is reminding these believers of their family connection. The family connection that exists because of the grace of God that they have received through faith in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, through his faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, we have been adopted as God's children. More specifically, we have been adopted as his sons. God is our father by grace, and that makes us brothers and sisters. And we saw this last week in small group Bible study. How many of you were in small group Bible study this morning? How many of you were in small group Bible study last weekend? You talked about this idea last weekend of adoption, that we are sons from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. If you want to flip back over there, you can see it. Maybe, maybe you don't even have to turn the page. It says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's a beautiful thing, right? And Paul is reminding the church of that family connection. Brethren, and we are only brethren with one another if we've been adopted into God's family by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So that leads us to the first important question of the day. Are you a son of God and therefore a brother of those who are his sons by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you repenting of your sins and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Basically, the question is, are you a Christian? This is the most important question of the day. And if the answer for you is no, then my invitation to you is to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. He's adopting people into his family all the time. And maybe today is the day of your adoption, your redemption, your conversion. Repent of your sins and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And if you are a son of God, and therefore a brother of those who have been adopted into his family, then praise the Lord for that. And listen up, brethren. This is for you. Brothers, he says. This is a family matter we're talking about here. Let's get that context right. He's talking about a family matter. Brethren, he goes on and says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, this is the situation that Paul is addressing here. And it is a situation that is very familiar to us. John MacArthur describes it this way. He says, sin is a reality in every Christian's life. If we say we have no sin, 
We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John warns believers. In fact, he goes on to say, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. That's from 1 John chapter 1. James chapter 3 says, we all stumble in many ways. Sin is a reality in the Christian life. If anyone is caught in any trespass, and that's going to happen. It's going to happen because we are prone to sin. We are weak and frail oftentimes. There's a little bit of debate amongst scholars about how to exactly understand the word caught that's used here in this verse. It's only used three other times in the scripture, and honestly, it's, it's a tricky little word. There's one camp of scholars that would say caught here is like caught red-handed, like the woman who is caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery. You remember that story in John chapter 8? Maybe that's what's being referred to here by being caught. There's another camp of scholars that would stress the element of surprise, like being caught in a trap, like, like the little critter that's walking through the woods, minding his own business, looking for something to eat, and suddenly, out of the blue, he's caught in a trap. There's a third group of scholars that would say it's the idea of being stuck in that trap and unable to get yourself out of that trap, right? So you see the three differences in those things? And I honestly don't know which of those options is right or best. But I'm not really sure it matters a whole lot. That maybe it doesn't make a huge difference, especially when we consider the wide range of situations that Paul seems to be addressing here. The wide range of possibilities that Paul seems to be pointing to. Notice, he says in the text, if anyone is caught in any trespass. That seems to be opening this principle up to all kinds of situations where a brother finds himself in a trespass. Whether he is caught red-handed whether he is surprised or whether he is stuck. The problem is that the brother is in sin, whatever that sin might be. And so Paul is saying, when this happens, here's what we need to do. Now, in light of the broader context of the book of Galatians, it's likely that Paul is referring to those who are caught in the trespass of forsaking the true gospel, the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, leaving that to go to the works-based, self-righteous, false gospel of the Judaizers, right? He may be saying that that's the one that needs to be addressed here, that that's the one who's caught in the trespass, the one who is leaving Jesus to follow the Judaizers. That may be the specific application here, but I don't think that means it's the exclusive application of what's going on in this text. There seems to be a broader context that this text will apply to. So notice he says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, that's the situation. Now here's who's to do something about it. He says, you who are spiritual. This is the group that's being called to action here. And we often make a tragic mistake at this point. In fact, you may be doing it even now. If it is the spiritual ones who are called to do this work of restoration, you may be telling yourself that I'm off the hook. I'm off the hook because I'm not one of the spiritual ones. Don't do that. That is a misunderstanding of the text, and it is your inferior conceit coming out of you. This is for all of us. Who is the spiritual one? Well, it's the one who has the Spirit, right? And who has the Spirit? Well, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And how do we know we have the Spirit? Well, do you believe? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? And are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit that we looked at earlier in chapter 5? Listen, if you have the Spirit, you are among the spiritual ones who have been called to this action. In other words, 
This text is not singling out some super spiritual elite group within the church at large and laying the responsibility of the restoration of the sinning brother on them. It's not what's going on here. He's not saying, give me the top 10% to do the work of restoration. He's not saying, this is for the varsity team and not for the JV team. No, this is for all of us who would follow after Jesus Christ, who would trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, this command is for ordinary folks like you and me. We are all responsible to our brothers to restore the one who is caught in any trespass. All of us. So beware of your conceit here, your boastfulness that we talked about last week that might be rearing its head in some kind of inferiority that says, it's not for me. I'm not spiritual. How could I ever restore someone who is in sin? I'm just not that far along in my walk with the Lord yet. No, no, no. You don't don't get off the hook like that. We are all responsible to one another, for one another in this way. So he says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now this is the heart of the command. This is the imperative. This is what we are called to do. And the word for restore here is a very interesting word. It's used in the scene when Jesus calls some of his first disciples. You might remember this scene. They are sitting on the shore after a long night of fishing, repairing their nets, right? Mending their nets. The word there is restore. They are restoring their nets. They are putting, in other words, what is messed up and no longer useful for its purpose back into good shape so that it can be used. You get that picture? That's the picture of restoration that's going on here. Something is broken and cannot be useful for its intended purpose, and it's being mended so that it can be used again. That's one way the word is used in the Bible. There's a broader context in the Greek language that would use that word in the medical world to refer to putting back into place a joint that has been displaced. Now, when I studied this and thought about it, I couldn't get out of my head Mel Gibson's character, Martin Riggs, in Lethal Weapon. Do you remember that? His shoulder kept coming out of socket, and he would walk over to a wall or a filing cabinet, and he would slam his shoulder into it and put it back into place. you remember that? Yes, I just made reference to Lethal Weapon. That's okay, I think. It looked like a painful process, right? To put that joint back into place looked like a painful process. That word for restore here is also used to describe what a doctor does with a badly broken bone. He sets it. Uh, a bone that is completely broken. I saw this happen one time in Mississippi with a kid. We were riding four-wheelers, and he mangled his arm. It was like he had an extra elbow between his elbow and his wrist. And it was not my job to restore that. I don't think I have the stomach for that. We had to get him to the hospital, and one of the first things they did at the hospital is they grabbed a hold of it and yanked on it, right, to get it back together. (gasps) Now, this picture is really interesting to me because it seems to imply a certain amount of pain involved in the process. Have you ever had that done? A bone set, a joint Uh, relocated or something like that. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I had a bike crash uh, going down the hill really fast, landed on my face, my chin in particular, and I I had to go get some stitches. 
And the doctor that put the stitches in, he said, this is going to hurt a little bit. And he was right. It hurt a little bit. It hurt a lot. But it was necessary in order to be well and whole again. But it doesn't mean that it's not excruciatingly painful for a few moments. And if that's the way it works in the, spirit, in the physical world, I think spiritual restoration works that way sometimes as well. And, and I say this not just from a theoretical perspective. I think spiritual restoration can be more painful than setting a broken bone. Because I've experienced that pain myself. And I have often witnessed that pain in others. This kind of thing doesn't happen without some pain. But it's worth it. The pain is worth it to be made whole again. To be put back to use again. John MacArthur describes it like this. He says, spiritual believers restore a fallen believer, first of all, by helping him recognize his trespass as a trespass. That sounds painful in itself. Right? If you are caught in something that you don't even know is a trespass and your brother has to come along and say, that's a huge problem, that might be painful for you. First of all, by helping him recognize his trespass as a trespass, until a person admits his sin, he cannot be helped out of it. Once he has done that, he must be encouraged to confess his sin before God and turn away from it in repentance, sincerely seeking God's forgiveness. So this is what we're called to do, brethren. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And we are called to do that restoration, painful as it may be, in some very specific ways, with a very specific approach that he describes in the next couple of phrases. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So first thing we notice is that we are to do this with a spirit of gentleness. Now that word gentleness is the same word that's used back in chapter 5 in the fruit of the spirit section. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of your translations don't say gentleness, they say humility. Restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Set the broken bone back in place with a spirit of gentleness. Can this happen? Yes. Those two things seem quite different, but they can happen, and they must happen. We can set the broken bone, maybe not gently, but with a spirit of gentleness. I remember that doctor who put those stitches in my chin. He said, Chris, this is going to hurt a little bit. And he did it as gently as possible to sew me up. But he inflicted the pain. Nonetheless, he didn't say, you big sissy. Stop the crying. you got to get these stitches or you won't be better. He did it with a spirit of gentleness, inflicting the, the pain with a spirit of gentleness. And that's what we've been called to here. I want to also add that when we seek to restore a sinning brother, it is possible for us to be so gentle that we inflict more pain. That we don't ever get to healing and we simply compound the pain. Let's go back to that picture of the broken bone. My friend Braxton who had the extra elbow that day. If I had grabbed a hold of his wrist and kind of just very gently pulled on it real slow. 
and then said, oh, it hurts, I'll, I'll stop. And then start again till it hurts and stop. Would I be helping Braxton at all? No, I would just be prolonging and compounding the pain that he already has. And I think the church makes this mistake oftentimes with sinning brothers. We say something until it seems like it hurts a little bit, and then we're like, oh, I don't, don't want to hurt you. But we're never, we're never getting to the point of restoration. And the goal is restoration, right? The, the imperative is restore such a one. That's the goal of it all. We're to do it with the spirit of gentleness, but the goal is restoration, not gentleness. Secondly, he says we are to do it with personal carefulness. A spirit of gentleness and personal carefulness. This goes right along with gentleness or humility. We don't do this kind of restoration with boastful conceit, but rather we do it with humility of spirit that acknowledges our own sinfulness and our propensity to sin. And we proceed in the process of restoration with great caution for our own souls as well so that we don't become caught in any trespass, so that we are not tempted to the same sin. Tim Keller says, we won't be able to winsomely confront someone if we think we are not capable of similar or equal sin. That's wisdom right there. We will not be able to winsomely, rightly, gently, appropriately, helpfully confront someone if we think we are not capable of similar or equal sin. If we go into the process of restoration thinking, I am far above this and would never do such a thing, we're, we're losing to start with. So we go into that process with great gentleness and great care and great personal carefulness of our own hearts and our own souls. John Stott summarizes this whole section, actually just verse 1, by saying this. If we detect somebody doing something wrong, we are not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it's none of our business and we have no wish to be involved, nor are we to despise or condemn him in our hearts and if he suffers for his misdemeanor, say, serves him right, or let him stew in his own juice, nor are we to report him to the minister or gossip about him to our friends in the congregation. No, we are to restore him, to set him back on the right path. This is how Luther applies the command. Run to him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. One of the big things I wanted to get out of that quote is we don't stand there and watch. Our brother caught in sin. We don't stand there and watch, and we don't run and talk to other people about it. We run to him and help restore him with a spirit of gentleness. John Piper summarizes this verse by saying, The main point of the passage then is bear one another's burdens. Specifically, take on the trouble of helping people realize their sin and get it repaired. You, you pumped about that? You excited to do that? Help your brother realize his sin and get it repaired. That's going to get messy. That's going to be painful. That's not going to go well sometimes. But it is clearly what we've been called to do. Clearly. Brothers. Anyone is caught in any trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. In spirit of gentleness. Maybe you're thinking of a passage 
in Matthew chapter 7 that is similar to this. Jesus speaks about a thing like this. In fact, maybe earlier when I said, you, you, you don't get out of this by saying I'm not spiritual, I want to tell you you also don't get out of it because you have sin in your own life. Right? You remember that story when Jesus talks about trying to remove the speck from your brother's eye while you've got a log protruding from your own? Let's look at that text together. Matthew chapter 7. It'll be on the screen or you can turn there. Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And then he goes on to talk to, uh, talk to us about how we should judge one another. Like that, I heard somebody say the other day that John 3.16 used to be the most often quoted passage of scripture in America. Now Matthew 7.1 is. You hear this all the time. You don't hear Matthew 7.2 or 3.4 quoted with it. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Listen to this. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He goes on in the same breath to say, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What's our obligation then? Don't say anything about anything in anyone's eye. That's the practical application most American Christians take from this text. I'm just going to leave the eyes alone, because i got a thing in mind. No, 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 what is it? Let's be humble, let's be honest, let's deal with our stuff, and let's help each other get stuff out of your eye. Can you get something out of your own eye if it's tiny? How often have you gone to someone and said, oh, I think I got something in my eye. Can you see it? You know why you have to say that? You can't see your own eye. And you know how sensitive the eye is? We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. How many of you would just be totally grossed out if I put my finger on my contact lens and moved it around a little bit right now? Like, Hillary Ford is out of here, if that happens. Right? Sensitive, right? We don't want anybody messing with our eye. We want to shield them. If somebody sticks their finger toward my eye, I'm going I'm to hide my eye. But that's what we're called to do as brothers and sisters. Let's help one another get stuff out of our eyes. Let's trust one another enough. You're not going to gouge my eye. You're trying to help me. I got something in there that's causing a problem. This is what we're called to do as brothers and sisters. And we're called to do it with humility with gentleness, with patience. But we're called to do it. We cannot get around that. And so that's application number one today. Let's love one, or, one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin. Let's love one another enough, because that's what he gets to, right? That's, that's verse two. Bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ from last week? Love one another, Right? So let's love one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin. Now, I will admit to you that there are about 1,000 reasons why we fail to do this with one another. And they all, 1,000, stink. They all, 1,000, I believe, are evidence of our own inferiority complex, our own conceit that comes out, our own just simple unwillingness to do what God has told us to do. Sometimes we say, I'm not spiritual. I'm not one of the spiritual ones. I can't get involved in this. 
Sometimes we say, I've got a log sticking out of my own eye, so how could I ever say something to someone else about anything in their life? You don't get around it like that. It's a command. Sometimes we we try to avoid this because we compartmentalize our lives. We, We like to live like there's a certain part of my life that is exposed to you and a whole other set of my life that you never get to know anything about. Right? Don't, don't come walking into my living room. I'll talk to you on the porch, but don't get into my living room. No, we are to share all of our lives with one another. Maybe we don't do this because it gets uncomfortable. Putting your finger in someone else's eye is uncomfortable for everyone involved. Setting a broken bone is uncomfortable for everyone involved. We've not been called to comfort. Comfort is not our goal. It's not our priority. Glorifying God by living in holiness, that's a goal to shoot for. We also sometimes don't do this because our experience in the past has not played out well. I tried to take the speck out of my brother's eye once, and he tried to kill me. I tried to set the broken bone once, and that guy hates me forever now. I'm not doing it again. A good friend of mine said, we tend to only remember the worst case scenarios and things like this. We tend to forget what worked. We tend to forget about the brother who, who, who has no speck in his eye now. We tend to forget about the brother whose arm has healed. We tend to forget about those things because oftentimes the restoration is private and the rejection is public. And so because of our experience, sometimes we say, I'm just, I'm just not going down that road. I, don't have, I can't. I don't have the energy for it. There are a thousand reasons why we fail to do this. But we must do this. We've been called to this. John Piper has a great section in his sermon on this text where, where he talks about, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. Don't, don't throw the healthy baby out with the dirty water. He says, now, this is, what he, this is what Piper says. Now, having made the main point, everything else in Galatians 6, 1 to 5 is a warning against the danger of pride in those who take on the burden of correcting and restoring a fellow believer. That's what we're going to talk about next week in big ways. Attention! It is not a warning against correcting and admonishing and restoring a person. It is a warning against doing it arrogantly. Unlike some of us, Paul will not throw out the baby of confrontation with the bathwater of pride. It's gold. The dirty bathwater of pride must go, but the clean and healthy baby of loving, humble confrontation must stay. And the church, by and large, has thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And we don't love each other the way we should because we do not seek to restore the one who is caught in any trespass. So maybe to use another picture from a couple weeks ago, let's help each other nail the old man back on the cross. Remember that picture? We have crucified the flesh along with his passions and desires. At conversion, we nailed the old man, the flesh, to the cross. And yet we tend sometimes to like bring him down and baby him up and make, get him back on his feet. Well, what we need to do with one another is help each other nail that old man back to the tree so that he will die. Let's love one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin. That's number one. Number two, let's do that the right way. Let's do it and do it the right way. 
with a spirit of gentleness, with an eye on our own souls, recognizing that this entire package, passage, much of what we've already seen, much of what we will see in the weeks to come, is a warning to the spiritual ones who would seek to restore the erring brother. In other words, the focus of the text is not the erring brother, it's the spiritual ones who'd seek to do the, the work of restoration. So if you're going to do it, let's do it right, with a spirit of gentleness and with an eye on your own souls. Number three is a question that I am wrestling with. In light of this text, in light of 17 years of ministry, what do you do when your effort at restoration fails or is rejected? I'm wrestling with that big time. What do you do when, or if, probably when, your effort at restoration fails or is rejected? I don't know all the answer to this yet, but here's what I've got so far. Number one, I'm going to re-examine my attitude, my motive, and my approach to the restoration. Right? Was it in a spirit of gentleness? Was it for the purpose of restoration? And is there conceit coming out some way in the process in me? I want to examine those things personally to see if I did it with the right attitude, motive, and approach. Secondly, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Because God is ultimately the one who restores the erring brother, right? Like, we are not ultimately the one. We help in the process of restoration. But if a brother is going to be restored, God is going to primarily do that work. And so in my effort at restoration, I don't bear the full weight of his future restoration myself. I simply say, all right, God, like in most things you do, you use us to accomplish your purpose, but you must do it. Like, I'm going to preach the gospel to lost people, but only God can save them. And I'm going to seek to restore my erring brother, but only God will ultimately restore him. So secondly, I'm going to pray. I'm going to re-examine my attitude, my motive, and my approach. I'm going to pray. I'm going to enlist others. This is biblical. If my individual effort at restoration fails, Matthew 18 would say, get a couple of brothers and go, go as a group. Bring some other people along. And what I've found is, not only is that biblical, it's sometimes intensely practical. Sometimes, no matter what I say, and no matter how I say it, somebody's not going to hear it from me. I'm amazed at the summers I've spent coaching Isaac in baseball, telling him things, showing him how to do it. And then a couple summers ago, Dylan Luce took over. Dylan, who didn't have a kid on the team, they all listened to him. He didn't say anything different than I'd been saying. Same stuff I had said for years. Dylan says it, and they're like, that's great, coach. I will do that, coach. Sometimes we need to bring others in because it just won't be heard from us. There's nothing wrong with that. I think another thing that I want to consider when my effort at restoration fails or is rejected is to consider the possibility that the one in air is not a believer in the first place. Like perhaps the reason why there's no restoration is there's no real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That could happen. So what do we do? Pray for conversion. Not just restoration, but conversion. New life. New heart. Here's the takeaways. What do you do when your effort at restoration fails or rejected? Remember, 
The ideal outcome is restoration. But restoration is not guaranteed. And restoration cannot be unilateral. Restoration cannot be unilateral. You cannot restore the one who does not want to be restored or who will not be restored. You cannot do it on your own. Second thing to remember is that sometimes the road to restoration is long and winding and hilly and painful. Sometimes a conversation is had and only heard 10 years later. Have you ever had one of those experiences? Where 10 years down the road, you're like, man, that guy knew what he was talking about. I should have listened to him 10 years ago. Sometimes that road to restoration is long and winding. What do you do when your effort at restoration fails or is rejected? Those are my thoughts at this point. I hope you will wrestle with that question. And if you have great insight, please share it with me. Number four. Question that we're going to chase for a couple weeks now. From here forward. Who is responsible for the erring brother's lack of restoration? If an erring brother is not restored, who is responsible for his lack of restoration? I'll I'll give you the the quick answer to this, and we're going to chase this from the text over the next few weeks. He is responsible. The erring brother is responsible for his sin. It was his sin. Not your sin, his sin. And he will answer for his sin. He will stand before God and answer for that. You will not stand before God and answer for him. Okay? But... Having said that, we are also responsible in some way, though a different way. At some level, we are responsible, especially if we fail to seek restoration. If we don't even try to set the broken bone, if we don't even try to mend the net, if we don't even try to to restore the erring brother, we will be responsible in some way, at some level. There's a passage in Ezekiel where God paints this picture of the watchman on the wall, the prophet's job is to blow the trumpet when he sees danger coming. And the whole picture goes, listen, watchman on the wall, if you blow the trumpet and the people respond to the trumpet, praise the Lord, they've been saved. If you blow the trumpet and they don't respond and they get slaughtered by the incoming enemy, it's on them. You blew the trumpet and they ignored it. They'll answer for that. But he speaks very clearly to the prophet and says, if you stand on that wall and you watch the trouble come and you don't blow the trumpet, You're in big trouble. In church, we have done that too much. Stood on the wall, watched the trouble come, and left the trumpet in the case. At least blow the trumpet. For the good of your brother, for the good of the church, for the glory of God. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself in the process, right? But do the work of restoration and do it the right way. Let's stand together and pray. Father, your word is its hard sometimes. It confronts us sometimes and shows us our frailty, our stubbornness and rebellion. We're thankful, though, that you confront us for our good. You restore us by your grace. We're thankful for that. 
Help us to love one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin. When we see the brother caught in trespass, let us run to him. Help us run to him to restore him. And help us to do it the right way with a spirit of gentleness, with an eye on our own souls, not to be caught in pride and arrogance in the process. And help us to navigate the uncertain waters when the restoration effort fails or is rejected. I guess, Father, ultimately, I'm asking for myself for courage to continue to try to do the work of restoration. In spite of the challenges. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the men, women in my life who have restored me when I've been caught in trespass. Thankful for their gentleness and their humility. We want to be those kind of people for one another. Father, we recognize that all of this is a family matter and that there are people here today that are not part of the family. We pray that you'll change that today. You'll adopt them into your family by grace as a gift through faith, not work. That you'll open their eyes to see their sin and Jesus dying in their place. You'll give them repentance to turn and faith to trust in Jesus Christ. And that you'll make them our brothers and sisters today. God, do all of this for your own sake. In Christ's name we pray. We're going to sing a 